John 14, 25 to 31. Because I go to the Father. These things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now, I have told you before it comes to pass, that when it comes to pass you may believe. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming, and he has nothing in me. But that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Arise, let us go from here. Amen. Let's pray, shall we? Our Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this reminder in this passage of how Christ is the source of peace and that we should not be troubled about anything, but trust that because of the work He accomplished on our behalf, we have great confidence to pray and great confidence to maintain our faith to endure until the end. Would you, Lord, encourage us in this way and enable us, Father, to have great confidence whenever we pray, whenever we read your word, and whenever it is trouble that faces us. Help us, Father, to have this kind of great faith. In the name of Christ, amen. This passage in verses 25 to 31 continues some of the same thoughts and sentiments that Christ has been expressing from the end of chapter 13. Remember that from 13, 31, 13, 31 through 17, 17, 26, this is one long discourse that Christ has with his disciples, a discourse and prayer in the presence of his disciples. This is what John is explaining to us during the final days of Christ on the earth, before his crucifixion. And then, in 25 to 31, he expresses the fact that he is leaving. He is going to the Father. Because I go to the Father. That one phrase, that one phrase, because I go to the Father, is right here in the center of this section of 25 to 31. It's in verse 28. Because I go to the Father. He is going to the Father. He's been saying that since chapter 13. John's been telling us that since the beginning of chapter 13. Chapter 13, verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God. 13, verse 3. He was in the world temporarily. But when he came into the world, what did he do? What did he accomplish? And then while he was in the world, did he leave the world and disappear from his disciples? Meaning, did he leave them completely abandoned like orphans? No, he did not do that. But because we all are usually weak in faith, we all usually have little faith. 
not even as much faith as, as the, the size of a mustard seed. Because he said, if you had that amount of faith, you would be able to move a mountain in terms of spiritual things. But we don't often even have that. So he takes a long time to explain, many times to explain in many ways, that he is still with us, he loves us, he cares for us, he gives us his peace, he gives us his assurance, he gives us confidence that we should trust him even though we cannot see him with our physical eyes. Even though we don't hear him with our ears. By the presence of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. The Word of God and the Word of the Holy Spirit of God. That Word, that assurance, the Spirit dwelling in us, this is what we need. And this is all what he's reiterating time and time again in this passage. This passage and the chapters in this section. So, verse 25, he says, These things I have spoken to you, While abiding with you. He has spoken so far, thus far, while remaining, while mingling, while living, ministering among them. While he was with them, he spoke these words. But why did he speak these words? Many, many times, we've already said. Why does he say it one time and then another time and the third time? Sometimes the same way and in sometimes different ways. Why does he mix it up like that? And why does he say it so often while he's with them? Because he's implying he's not going to be with them while abiding with you. He's already told them he's going to disappear. He's going to depart. He's going to depart temporarily for three days. And then he's going to depart permanently, physically from their life until they die and then meet the Lord in heaven, right? So he is with them temporarily. But when one is in the presence of another temporarily, what should he do if he's got the word of the gospel in, on his mouth, in his lips? What should he do? What should he do? Second Peter chapter 1. We should do just like Christ did. And we'll see here that Peter teaches us to do the same. 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter 1, 12 to 15. 2 Peter 1, 12 to 15. Therefore, I shall always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. And I consider it right, as long as I am in this earthly dwelling, to stir you up by way of reminder, knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you may be able to call these things to mind. The, the, the Apostle Peter learned from Christ. Christ repeated things while he was with them. Peter, while he is with the church, the early church, says, I shall always be ready to remind you. I'm always going to be reminding you, even though you already know the truth, you're established in the truth, 
It's okay and it's right to do so while I am with you, to stir you up by way of reminder. Are we not forgetful people? Don't we get distracted also very often? So reminders are good. And a humble heart will receive the reminder. In his case, he knew he was going to depart because Christ told him he was going to be persecuted to death in John 21. And here he reminds us of that fact in verse 14. Knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent, as also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. That's a reference to John 21, 21, 19. So, why remind people while you are with them? Verse 15, I will also be diligent. He's a diligent reminder that at any time after my departure, you may be able to call these things to mind. If somebody says something that is a word or intangible, that is not physically, visibly in your presence every day, then it's harder to remember. That's why we need them to say it again and again. And Peter learned the lesson to teach his disciples. And we should do the same. 2 Peter 3, 2 Peter 3, verse 1. 2 Peter 3, 1. This is now, beloved, verses 1 and 2. This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. He says he wrote a second letter to stir up their sincere mind by way of reminder. To stir up. This is like cooking something on the stove. If it's not stirred up properly and often, then whatever is being cooked may not turn out well. It may not be edible because it wasn't stirred up properly. The same way here. Spiritual things need to be stirred up in a sincere mind, a genuine mind, a humble and converted mind by way of reminder. And the reminder is in verse 2, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. Jude, verse 5. Jude, verse 5. He says, Now I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And verse 17, Jude 17. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jude is also a reminder. Philippians 3. Philippians 3, verse 1. Philippians 3, verse 1. The apostle says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. To write the same things is no trouble, because he is a patient instructor of the truth. Therefore, it's no trouble. He's not bothered. If they genuinely need it and want to know it, sincerely want to know it, he reminds them and writes the same thing again and again. How often, however often it is necessary. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 
chapter 12, verses 4 to 6. Hebrews 12, 4 to 6. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. He had to tell them this. Here, the apostle tells them, because you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. You forgot, so that's why I wrote to remind you not to be discouraged when the Lord disciplines you. You may also recall that when Moses before he died and Joshua before he died, both of them recounted the history of the people and God's gracious dealings with them and exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord to remain true and resolute to the Lord, right? Deuteronomy chapters 27 to 32 and Joshua 23 to 24. They both did so. Even the Apostle Paul did so. When he knew that he may not ever see the elders of Ephesus again, he reminded them of things they had already heard, they already knew. In the book of Acts, chapter 20, the book of Acts, chapter 20, 17 to 38. Acts 20, 17 to 38. When we read this passage, ask yourself, do you think Paul said these things for the first time to them? Likely not. But he also repeated many things to them before he departed from them. While he was with them, He told them what they needed to hear, just like Christ did. So Acts 20, 17. And from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, bound in spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself in order that I may finish my course and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that you all, among whom I went about preaching the kingdom, will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. 
and from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or clothes. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my own needs and to the men who were with me. In everything I showed you that by working hard in this manner you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and they began to weep aloud and embrace Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken, that they should see his face no more. And they were accompanying him to the ship. Jesus was faithful until the end, just as these apostles were, and just as we are taught, faithful in spreading the truth, repeating the truth to one another, so that we are faithful until the end. He doesn't want his disciples to fall away. Verse 26, John 14, 26. Not only do we have the words of Christ in verse 25, now we have in verse 26, the Spirit of Christ. The Word of Christ in 25, the Spirit of Christ in verse 26. He says, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. The Spirit of Christ is who we need. We need Him. And He's called the Helper. We said that it would best be rendered in this passage Comforter because He is sent to comfort us, to give us peace, such as verse 27. Peace in the midst of affliction. Peace in the midst of persecution. He is sent to give us peace. So he is a comforter. And this word can mean comforter. So he does comfort us. He does help us. How does he help us? He helps us by comforting us and helping us to remain faithful and not agitated and anxious along the way on the path of the Christian life. This is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. The Comforter is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The Holy Spirit, the same one mentioned in the Great Commission. Acts, uh, or Matthew chapter 28, 19 and 20. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is the Holy Spirit, Father, Son, and Spirit. This is the one he has in mind. He does not have in mind Mohammed. He does not have in mind the second wife of Sung Young Moon, of the Moonies. 
Because these cults and false religions, they say the Holy Spirit was Muhammad, or the Holy Spirit was the wife of Sung Yang Moon, so on and so forth. There are many erratic and bizarre interpretations. No, we're talking about the Spirit of God, not any person, the Spirit of God. This Spirit of God, sent by the Father in the name of Christ, the character and the authority of Christ, the Father sends the Holy Spirit to us. This is how the Spirit comes. The Spirit does not come to us because of the will of man. It's not the will of man that conjures up, that insists, that forces, that compels the Spirit to work in this or that way. This is not the way the Spirit works. The Spirit works and acts according to His own will, Hebrews 2.4 says. Hebrews 2.4, according to His own will. 1 Corinthians 12, 11 and 12 speak of the Spirit, distributes the gifts of the Spirit according to His will, the will of the Spirit. So God, Father, Son, and Spirit, their will is the superior will. It is the strong will involved in sending assistance to us, in helping us. It does not depend on us. It depends on God. That's why we depend on God and pray to God for His assistance. So in this case, what will the Holy Spirit do? Verse 26, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. He will come and assist us. Well, first and initially, He helped the apostles. He helped the apostles to remember the words of Christ so that they might write the words of Christ. Correct? Remember we read in 2 Peter, 2 Peter 3, verse 2, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. The apostles spoke and wrote what Christ spoke. Right there, 2 Peter 3, verse 2. Jude 17. But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They weren't apostles sent by anybody else, but sent by the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why what we believe in the New Testament, we believe that the apostles remembered and wrote what Christ spoke to them and whatever the Holy Spirit wanted them to remember and write. That's why we have the New Testament the way we do, because of the work of the Spirit to remind the apostles to write. But the Spirit will also do for us in the sense that He will remind us of the Scriptures whenever we are in trouble whenever we need help, whenever we need to say a word. The Holy Spirit also works in us. Even when we have nothing before us, nothing, no, no help, no assistance, no piece of paper, no prayers, no scriptures, whenever we need to defend ourselves. Matthew 10. Matthew 10. 
he says. 10, 16 to 20. Matthew 10, 16. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues, and you shall even be brought before governors and kings for my sake, as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not become anxious about how or what you will speak, for it shall be given you in that hour what you are to speak. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. The Spirit of your Father will speak in you. So whatever we need to say, whatever reminders we need, instantly, on the occasion, when our persecutors are demanding an answer from us, it will be the Spirit of your Father who helps us at that time. He'll remind us of the Scripture, remind us of the truth, remind us of whatever we must say. Verse 27, John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Peace from Christ. He leaves the peace with us. He is the Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9, 6, and 7. He is that. But it doesn't mean that when He is absent, that He is unable to continue to grant us the peace that we have when He is present. When He is absent, because the Spirit dwells within us, and He gives us more and more of the power and grace of the Spirit, He leaves us with peace. And it is His peace. He says, My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. He leaves us with His peace. Right? Because He leaves us with His peace, He says, Let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. No need whatsoever to be troubled. He reminded us in chapter 14, 1, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Believe in Him. Whatever He says, believe it. What kind of peace does He leave? We must believe it, but what is this peace? The peace is twofold peace. Actually, it's twofold and in, in contrast to the world's peace. First, Romans 5, 1 says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 1. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We should never doubt now that we are justified by faith, we should never doubt that we are reconciled with God. We're not His enemies anymore. We are not under His wrath anymore. If we continue reading in Romans 5, all the way to verse 11, He reminds us of that fact. We were enemies, but now we are reconciled. God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more now that we have been reconciled been reconciled, do we have peace with God? We're no longer His enemies. 
Romans 5. So whenever the troubles come, we shouldn't think, God doesn't love me. I don't belong to Him. He doesn't care for me. That kind of thought should not come because we have peace with God. Secondly, we have peace with one another. We have peace with one another in the body of Christ. Ephesians 2, Ephesians 2, 11. Ephesians 2, 11. 11 to 22. Ephesians 2, 11. Therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one, and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near." For through him, we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. In 11, 11 and following, he reminds us that Christ is our source of peace with God. But then who benefits from that? Who benefits from this peace with God? It's Jews and Gentiles, circumcised and uncircumcised. People who live far away, verse 17. You who were far away and peace to those who were near. Those who live far away and those who live near. Everywhere, this peace belongs to us. And therefore, because it belongs to us in God, in the blood of Christ, by the blood of Christ, by the work of the Spirit, we are one new man, verse 15, one body. We have our access in one spirit to the Father, verse 18. We are fellow citizens with the saints, verse 19. And we are one building, one holy building. This is who we are, Jews and Gentiles, whatever the background. This is the kind of peace he leaves with us. This reminds us of what he said. He said, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. John 13, 34 and 35. So this love is now ours in Christ. This is the peace we have and the love we have 
because we are in him. But he also said in John, our Lord said, not as the world gives. It is not a superficial peace. It's not a superficial fake or phony peace. They have the fake and phony peace. 1 Thessalonians 5. 1 Thessalonians 5 describes it. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 to 11. The peace of Christ is contrary to the peace of the world. 5, 1. Now, as to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying, peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day should overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be sober and alert. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. Well, if we have this kind of true peace, salvation, reconciliation, we are sons of light, what is it in contrast here? The world says, verse 3, peace and safety. They keep declaring peace and safety just because they have no warfare, just because they live in a secure and safe neighborhood, just because they have health and wealth, just because they don't believe in the day of judgment and the imminent wrath of God, because they don't believe in those things and they put their eyes, they fixate their eyes on earthly things, they keep telling people everything's going to be fine and good, peace and safety. But what happened, or what will happen here when the day of the Lord comes? Suddenly it'll all be gone. Wasn't it suddenly all gone in the days of Noah when the flood came? Nobody believed the words, the preaching of Noah. He was a preacher of righteousness, 2 Peter 2.5, yet they didn't believe in him. Nobody believed Lot, right? And suddenly fire and brimstone came from heaven. And so, suddenly also when the Lord returns, it says in verse 3, while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. No escape for the sudden wrath of God on fake peace, phony peace. In John 14, 27, after assuring us that he leaves us with peace, and we should believe it, he said it, so we should believe it. He then says, let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. He knows that when he departs temporarily for three days, they will have a troubled and fearful heart. 
If they could arrest our master and crucify him, they will chase after us too to make sure that they stamp out and obliterate the whole movement. Right? Troubled and fearful. They could have and would have been. And then when Jesus ascends into heaven, even more. You mean I have to live the rest of my life? 20, 30, 40, 50 years of my life? I have to live the rest of my life without Christ there to protect me, to assure me, to comfort me? So he says to them, let not your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. He knows human nature. He told us, John 14, verse 1, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. He also tells them later in 1633, 1633, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. After the three days and three nights, they had a tangible, physical, actual example that he overcame the world. He overcame the world. He overcame death. Nobody overcomes death. They had that. And that was a token of the life to come. And that's also ours. It's a token and a symbol of the life to come. As Christ overcame, we shall overcome. He said in fourteen nineteen, Because I live, you shall live also. So we should not fear. We should not be troubled. We should not be anxious. We should not be timid. Nothing like that should happen. Matthew 6. Matthew 6. Let's see for what reasons we are often anxious, troubled, and fearful. Matthew 6. The first is money, or shall we say daily provisions. Money or daily provisions. Matthew 6, 19. Matthew 6, 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. For this reason, I say to you, do not be anxious for your life as to what you shall eat or what you shall drink, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. Is not life more than food and the body than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Your heavenly Father, he said, feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single cubit to his life's span? And why are you anxious about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that even Solomon... In all his glory did not clothe himself like one of these. 
But if God so arrays the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more do so for you, O you of little faith? Do not be anxious then, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or with what shall we clothe ourselves? For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Each day. So just deal with the day's difficulties. But those who are fixated on treasures, verses 19 to 24, on wealth, they are serving a false master, a false, vacuous, empty master. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon, money, material possessions, we cannot put our hope in them. We should not be obsessed with them. We should not be addicted to them. It should not preoccupy our minds. And he taught us in verses 25 and following, if God cares for birds, if God cares for lilies, if God cares for the grass, are we not of more value than they? We are created in the image of God. Not only are we people created in the image of God, but we are redeemed by the blood of Christ. So, of course, he'll take care of us. So don't be anxious about it all. Don't be anxious about life, about clothing, about food and drink. Just do the will of God and trust God. Do his kingdom. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. If God helps the unbeliever in a distant nation who has no knowledge of the gospel, if God provides food for him, and many of them today, you can see it, Many of them are pot-bellied people, right? So he's given them plenty to eat. Why won't he take care of us? He will take care of us. If we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Then also, Matthew 10. What happens? Matthew 10, 24. 10, 24 to 33. But we might say, but they're out to get us. But they hate us. They're going to persecute us. They're going to arrest us. They're going to whip us. They're going to beat us. They're going to shoot us to death. They're going to chop us up. They have knives. They have swords. They have crowds. What are we going to do when the mob comes to our house? What are we going to do if they take away everything we have? Even then, even then, Matthew 10, 24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become as his teacher and the slave as his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household? Now, who is who here? The teacher, the master, and the head of the house these are Christ in the immediate context. These are Christ's 
because they have accused him of being Beelzebul, that is the ruler of the demons, being possessed by the devil. They have accused him and will accuse him in Matthew 12. So this is Christ. We are the disciples, we are the slaves, and we are the members of the household. So if they can have victory over Christ, they will seek victory over us because we are easy compared to Christ. We are nothing compared to Christ. But if we know that that will happen, what should we do? Should we be anxious and jittery? Verse 26. Therefore, do not fear them. For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Therefore do not fear. You are of more value than many sparrows. Everyone, therefore, who shall confess me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever shall deny me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. He tells us not to fear. Everything is going to be revealed one day. And don't you think that the, the judge of all the earth, God, will do justly? He'll do the right thing? Don't we believe that? Yes, he will do it. And what can they do? They can kill our body. Now, that is a bad thing. It's a horrible thing, especially if they torture us before they kill us, right? They can kill our body. Is that not what is mostly our concern? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? If they torture us, they torment us, they arrest us, they hang us upside down, they put us underwater, they drown us, they do this or that. What if they do these things to us? That's our concern. But Jesus said that is an invalid, it's an illegitimate, it's of no concern, it should be of no concern to you. Jesus, our Lord, said that. He said that. He said, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Fear God. And if you fear God, because he can throw your soul and body in hell, then that will help you know and do what you need to do for the moment in that situation. Fear God, not them. And a reminder, God cares about sparrows, birds, and God is... Knowledgeable, He has this immense, inscrutable knowledge of the very hairs of our head. Do you think he has more concern or no concern for your soul, which is more important than your hair? Right? Certainly he has concern. And then even more to motivate us to fear him and do what's right, he says, 32, everyone therefore who shall confess me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. If we confess him, when the persecutors come, when they mock us, when they threaten us, verbally or physically, when the persecutors come, what should we do? 
Remember to confess Christ. Not deny Him, but confess Him. Because if we deny Him, verse 33, but whoever shall deny me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. Can you imagine that day? We might be afraid and embarrassed to confess him now. But on that day of judgment, do we want Christ to deny us before God the Father? No. That will be such a horrifying, horrific day if Christ ever denies us and say, I don't know him, I don't know you, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Never. We should never, never say, it's just going to be fine. I can do what I want and I'll be ready for the day of judgment. No, we must confess him. And this starts, by the way, with daily confession of him before men. Some of us have more courage than others. Some of us are more gifted in speaking than others. But all of us are duty-bound to proclaim Christ to the people we encounter. And every time we do it, God encourages us to do it more and more, and He gives us the ability to do it more and more. He gives us the words to say so that we have less and less fear whenever it is time to say it, to confess Him to evangelize, to preach the gospel, to ask somebody, even strangers, what's going to happen to you when you die? Do you know? Are you ready for the day of judgment? Have you heard of Jesus Christ? Do you know why he died on the cross? These are easy ways to open up a conversation. We must do so. Not fearing what man can do to us. Confess him. Start now. Because one day it might be the case, either to us or somebody we know, who might be arrested, who might be thrown into prison, who might be executed because of faith in Christ. Yet we're supposed to be ready every day for that possibility. So preach the gospel and do not fear men. 2 Timothy 1.7, For God has not given to us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. He has not given to us a spirit of fear. If the spirit of fear does not come from God, it comes from the devil. The world, the flesh, and the devil have faith in God. John 14, 28. 14, 28. You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Christ had said, I go away and I will come to you. He said it in two ways. I go away temporarily, three days, and then you'll see me and you'll rejoice when you see me after three days. And he also meant it permanently between his first and second comings, that he was going to go away permanently until his second coming. And then when he comes again, he'll receive us to, our, uh, to himself so that where he is, we may be there also. John 14, verse 3. John 14, 3 is the 14, 1 to 3, the return of Christ. And then in John 14, 18 
and 19, he is talking about his temporary departure, his crucifixion. So both ways. Why? Because the temporary one is meant to illustrate the long-term one, the near miracle, the distant miracle. This is the way he's been speaking. So having said that, he says, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father. If you loved me. When he says, if you loved me, he doesn't mean they don't love him. He, he doesn't mean that at all. Because these disciples, except for Judas Iscariot, these disciples have already shown throughout the book of John that they love Christ. Peter said on behalf of the disciples, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. And we have come to know and believe that you are the Holy One of God. John 6, 68. Peter said that, right? So they do love him. He's not doubting that. But what he's saying when he says, if you love me, he's challenging them to grow in love. To grow in love of him. Just as he will challenge them in verse 29 to grow in in faith or belief. Grow in love and belief. Verse 29 is belief. That you may believe, he said. Right? So, why is it that we would rejoice because I go to the Father? Well, if Christ dies, rises again, ascends visibly, and they were eyewitnesses of this ascension, it didn't happen in, in a dark place, in a secret place. People saw it. The disciples saw it. Acts chapter 1, 9 to 11. They saw it. So this ascension, if his words have always been faithful and true, if his miracles have proven and vindicated his character and person, his mission, and if he dies, rises from the dead, and ascends to heaven as they all could testify that he did so. When he says, because I go to the Father, this is a further confirmation of all he, that he had preached, all that he had predicted. And when he goes to the Father, this is another step. It's a progression into the future as to the fulfillment of the promises of God. And what will he do when he is with the Father? He will intercede for us as he promised. In, in Romans 8.34, it says he intercedes for us. In the book of Hebrews 7.26-28, it speaks of him being our great high priest who intercedes for us in Hebrews chapter 7. He is our great intercessor. And he also, when he's seated at the right hand of the Father... He's seated at the right hand of power. Uh, Hebrews 8.1 He is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Hebrews 1.3 Seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. He's got power at the right hand of the Father. Like Joseph, the ruler of Egypt, he was the one who had power over the whole land. Correct? Pharaoh was the was chief, but Joseph was right under Pharaoh and had control over the whole nation. But even more, Christ being at the right hand of the Father, he has control over the whole universe. He's got the power. 
to do as he pleases. Christ does at the right hand of the Father. Because I go to the Father. And in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 28, it says, He must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be conquered or abolished is death. He must reign. So he is reigning as a powerful, mighty ruler. And he's going to reign between his first and second comings. And then upon his second coming, judge the world and introduce eternity to the whole world, whether eternity in heaven or eternity in hell. This is why he says, because I go to the Father. Because I go to the Father, we are proceeding. We are gradually progressing in the purposes of God in the world. And I've given you proof already, so believe what is to come. And my going to the Father will accomplish that. But when I do go to the Father in this intermediate period, we have promised the outpouring, the work, the ministry of the Holy Spirit to assure you, to equip you, to enable you, to illumine you, to cause you to remember the words of Christ and do the works of Christ. Because he is the spirit of grace who grants us grace to follow the God of grace. Further, verse 28. For the Father is greater than I. The moment we hear, because I go to the Father, we wonder not only about what he means by that, but also, for the Father is greater than I. This he has said in chapter 10, verse 29, that the Father is greater than all. 10, 29. In what sense did Jesus our Lord mean, the Father is greater than I? He did not mean, firstly, he did not mean that the Father has a greater or better nature than Christ that the Father possesses divinity and Jesus only has humanity. The Father greater than I does not have reference to his essence, his nature, or his divinity. He's not referring to that. He is referring to his work as mediator during his incarnation. He's referring to his work as our mediator, redeemer, our savior in reference to his incarnation. The Father is greater than Christ in that he sent Christ into the world in human form with a body of flesh and bones to live perfectly, die on the cross for our sins, rise from the dead and ascend into heaven and to remain in that body for all eternity. He not only acquired a body when he was born of Mary, but he maintained that body and maintains it right now and will do so for all eternity. We know he has a body now because it says in 1 Timothy 2, 4 and 5, for there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Also, it tells us in Philippians 
chapter 3, Philippians 3, 20 to 21. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state. He will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. The body, the glorified body he has now, he will transform ours in conformity to his, which means he has a body now, a glorified body now. And when he ascended, were the disciples not told in Acts chapter 1 upon his ascension? Were they not told the following? One eleven, the book of Acts chapter 1 verse 11. This is the bodily ascension of Christ. And they also said, the angels said to the men, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Which means he ascended bodily, he will descend bodily. He ascended that way, and he will return that way, bodily in both cases. So this is the sense in which the Father is greater than I. He sent Christ into the world during this incarnation to accomplish our redemption. Notice he didn't say, the Father is better than I. If the Father's nature, divine nature, were in view, he would have said the Father is better than I, because a divine nature is better than a human nature. But he's not talking about the nature, the essence, the substance, the being of Christ as deity. He's talking about his role in relation to the Father. In that sense, the Father sent him into the world. Remember John 13, 16, 13, 16. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, Neither one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. Well, who sent the Son? The Father did. Right? The Father sent the Son into the world. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Furthermore, verse, verses 29 to 31. We said in verse 29 that Christ announced these words in advance so that when it comes to pass, you may believe. In 1319, he said the same. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. These are more references to the fact that God tells us or predicts the future so that when the future is accomplished, and we see it, we experience it, we have confirmation and greater faith that what God said is true. This is in accordance with other passages we've been seeing in the book of John, where John the disciple, John the apostle, is trying to encourage us to have more and more faith. This is one of the ways God does so. He proves that he is God, he's not an idol, like Isaiah preached against that he is able to predict things 
And those things come to fruition. 11.15 says, I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Remember, did Mary and Martha believe in Christ? Yes. But when Lazarus was raised from the dead, they believed even more in Christ. Even more. She already says she believes in verse 27, 11, 27. She does believe, but she now will believe more after Lazarus is raised. And in the same way, the word of God, when it's fulfilled, teaches us to believe even more. Verse 30. I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of the world is coming. Who is the ruler of the world? By ruler of the world, he means the secondary ruler or the designated ruler. He does not mean the ultimate ruler of the world. He does not mean that at all. He means Satan. Satan and his forces are about to act and arrest him to crucify him. In in 1231... 12.31, he says, John 12.31, Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world shall be cast out. He's called the ruler of this world who will be cast out. 2 Corinthians 4, 2 Corinthians 4, 3-4. 2 Corinthians 4, 3-4. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The God of this world who blinds the minds of the unbelievers is Satan, the devil, also called the ruler or prince of this world. And we know he means Satan even in John 14.30 because he says, He has nothing in me. He, Satan, has nothing in me. Has nothing in me means Satan who is the accuser. Satan who is the one who loves to find fault. The fault finder. He has nothing in Christ. John 8, 46. Which one of you convicts me of sin? There's no sin in Christ. So Satan cannot accuse Christ of any sin. In Matthew 4, 1 to 11, Satan tempted Christ and was unsuccessful in making him sin. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. 1 Peter 2.22 Who was tempted in all points just as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 4.15 Hebrews 7.26-28 For it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever.
No sin in Christ. That's why the devil, though he's going to work with his minions to arrest and crucify Christ, it's all according to the ordination of God. It's not because the devil had some legitimate complaint against Christ, that Jesus was a sinner. Even the agent of Satan, Pilate, one of the agents of Satan, said, I find no guilt in him, John eighteen thirty eight. I find no guilt in him. I'm going to do this, but he's not a criminal. He's innocent. I find no guilt in him, Pilate had to say. So in this way, it's not because there is defeat. Satan's got nothing. Verse 31. On the other hand, but that the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, even so I do. Arise, let us go from here. The reason it happens this way has to do with the world knowing that I love the Father. Let's carefully observe. In verse 27, the world is the unbelieving world. In verse 31, the world is the believing world. In verse 27, the world is the unbelieving world. In verse 31, the world is the believing world. The believing world will know that Christ loves the Father. The believing world knows and believes that He obeys and does just as the Father commanded Him, that He is faithful until the end. No one takes my life away from me. I lay it down on my own initiative, and I take it up on my own initiative. This commandment I received from my Father, John 10, 18. So, Jesus obeyed and always did the things that are pleasing to Him. John 8, 29. So, we who believe, we believe that Jesus loves the Father and Jesus obeys the Father. And it always does whatever the Father told Him. We believe that. The unbelieving world does not believe that. They will be forced to believe it on the Day of Judgment, but they're not believing that now. We do. And finally, arise, let us go from here. Sometimes, on occasion, Christ will intimate what needs to happen to prepare the people before it does happen. They don't actually, literally, at this point, get up from the table, get up and and go. They will do that later from Bethany and into the Garden of Gethsemane in John 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron where there was a garden into which he himself entered and his disciples. So he goes there at that time, but not at this time. Though he intimates or indicates to them, we need to prepare ourselves to leave here and go elsewhere. And the elsewhere will be the place of his arrest in the garden. This too is the way Christ says things in advance to prepare us for what should happen. This is likely what's happening here at the end. So will we believe in Christ?
have greater faith and love of Christ because of what he has accomplished for us. All of his promises, all of his deeds that he has accomplished on our behalf. We must cling to him and have no fear. Fear no one and fear nothing. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.